Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Typically, I start these podcasts, I waltz my way into a classic rock lyric, which leads us to our title, Today, I'm going to do something a bit different. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. I am Guy Adami, typically joined by Dan Nathan, always joined by Danny Moses. However, we have the great Vinnie Daniel with us, which is amazing given what's transpired over the last couple of weeks. So, Vinnie, welcome. But give me a minute here to sort of set this up. In 1990, Danny, and we talked about this earlier in the week, Great movie with Tom Cruise. I think it's a great movie. Tom Cruise came out. Name of the movie, of course, Days of Thunder. Robert Duvall was in that movie as well. I would watch Robert Duvall read the phone book. But in that movie, uh, one Rowdy Burns, who was played by Michael Rooker, was in a race. And Michael Rooker, Rowdy Burns, was talking to his pit crew, talking about a move Tom Cruise was going to make. Tom Cruise, of course, called Trickle. And as they were approaching a turn in the racetrack, Rowdy Burns said to his pit crew, the boy doesn't have the balls to pass me on the outside. And you know what? He was probably right. Of course, what wound up happening, Tom Cruise did have the balls to pass him on the outside, and Cruise went on to win the race. So here's my analogy of what's going on right now. The market is Rowdy Burns, and the market is saying, Jerome Powell doesn't have the balls to hike rates next week, given what's transpired. I would submit Jerome Powell is going to play the part of Tom Cruise and will have the balls, the temerity to raise rates next week. And the market is not prepared. Vinny, thoughts on that? I agree with you. And I'll just rephrase your statement just a little bit. I think Powell wants to raise rates but has to make sure that the banking system that Danny and I knew a little something about is copacetic before he can do it. And so as a result, we sort of have to create a significant amount of band-aids of which we're seeing over the past few days to ensure that the world will live. And so as a result, he can keep on, quote, fighting inflation at least for the next month or two. 
That's my view. So I'm in agreement with you, but he needs a few things to happen. Guy, can I interject here with one of my movie ideas and do my guy Adami? In 1983, there was a movie way ahead of its time, I might add. The great Matthew Broderick, the great Ali Sheedy, the great Dabney Coleman. Do you know where I'm going with this, Guy? Benny knows. War games. Yes, you got it. So after thinking about all this, Joshua, the only winning move is not to play because watching all this from the sidelines, watching all this happening, that is the only winning move here. When you think about that movie, right? The back door, kind of the crypto junkies that get in there, the AI that was being used to launch these missiles that were simulated, all this stuff. It kind of feels like that right now because to me, we changed the Whopper, the war operation plan response, that machine that they triggered to the now the BTFP, which is the bank term funding program, which as I said the other day, really should be the BTFD, which is by the effing dip, as we all know, because here we are again. And I want to go back to about a week ago, a little over a week ago. 99% of the world had no idea that Silicon Valley had issues. The S&P, where was it? Right where it is right now. So what has happened in the last week? Okay. Fed's definitely pulled forward being done. We'll talk about why that happened later in the show, I'm sure. Okay, we got that Fed thing out of the way. But what you have created now is doubt about the stability of the banking system. And even if it's a 1% doubt, that has massive reverberations. And what Vinny just said about making sure, look what happened today. The ECB raises 50 basis points. They only did that because Credit Suisse got the lifeline from the Swiss bank. Okay, they did that knowing. They also basically did not give a forecast on what they'd be doing. They also said, basically, Draghi's words coming out, we'll do whatever it takes. So they did all of that. So now we have global QE coordination again going on. But here's the thing, and this is what we'll get into. All things being equal, if the market is going to trade on fundamentals and earnings overall, forget bank earnings for a second, which are going to go dramatically lower over time, I believe, as a result of this, Earnings for the system on the S&P are going to go lower. So my thing is, you were always going to get a, quote, rally when the Fed was done. You're always getting something. But we always talked about what would the reason be for the Fed being done. And this is not the reason that you want a guy. So, Vinny, I want to go to you here because Danny just said something that 99% of the pot, forget about whether they knew what was on their balance sheets or not. I would submit that if I walked in the middle of Times Square and asked 100 people if they ever heard of Silicon Valley Bank, hundred of them probably never heard of it. But again, that's not important. Here's what I want to say, though. You heard of Silicon Valley Bank. Porter heard of Silicon Valley Bank. Danny Moses did. Jim Chanos did. You actually took the time, had the rigor to go in and look at exactly what was on their balance sheet. And you said to your collective selves, this doesn't make sense. This is unsustainable. By the way, this was a stock and it's no coincidence that this stock, I think, was north of $700 in October of 2021. It started to turn lower in the fall, into December, into the new year when the Fed started to rate. This is not coincidental. And by the way, the outperformance of that stock vis-a-vis some of its counterparts was not coincidental either. And here's why I bring this up. People will say, well, wait a second. And I said this on Fast Money the other night. If they were under the auspices of the bank stress test, maybe this could have been avoided. And then subsequent to that, a number of people said, you're wrong, guy. Actually, they did a back test. And look, they would have come out fine on the bank stress test. Steve Eisman was on Fast Money and said the same thing. And we will put in our show notes some of the pieces that are out there right now that illustrate exactly that. 
So my point back was, okay, I'm wrong. But what does that say? It says the bank stress tests are friggin' flawed. You should have been doing the bank stress test. Porter should have been doing the effing stress test. Eisman should have been doing it. Danny should have been doing it. Chano should have been doing it. When casinos are getting ripped off, they don't bring in some asshole who reads a book. They bring in the people that understand how to beat the game. You are the guys that know how to beat the game. Thoughts on that? Preach, Braby. So, yes. And the funny thing is, if you go back a little bit, so you go back when they initially started these stress tests, the C-car stress test, and all the big banks had to go through it. And I remember when the designs of it initially came out, I remember asking the, some of the people, the analysts, and saying, well, wait a second. Does this stress test stress for deposit runs? And the answer is no. In fact, in the stress test, what they assume for the most part, and I'm not remembering it because after that, I actually took it in the trash and threw it away because I knew it wasn't super real. All those stress tests really did was stress credit, which gets to the point that I think is extremely important. What has happened over the last 10, 12 years or so post GFC, which is the banks traded credit risk for interest rate risk. Now take that into account and take it a little bit further, I apologize. And in a ZERP world, when you can't make money on short rated instruments, which the banks couldn't do, what did they do? They extended duration and started taking asset liability mismatches while they kept their leverage up because they could, because those assets they were putting on the books had low risk weights and as a result, what we have are these levered beasts that we're dealing with right now. So getting back to your question, you are right. No one was stressing this. Or my guess is the staffers underneath were stressing this, were probably highlighting there were issues. But when it was brought upstairs, they were probably snubbed out and told to shut up. That's my guess. In those stress test scenarios that came out of the beginning of 2022 that are supposed to project kind of a four-year running, five-year running thing, the Fed had the 10-year yields ranging between one and a half and two and a half percent, and the three-month yields ranging between zero and 1.5%. So that in and of itself, having raised to four and a half and what will probably be 4.75% next week in 2023, was slightly off as well. So to your point, Guy, it should really have a dynamic kind of stress test where you make that move. You have to believe that there's repercussions. And that's the scary thing is the Fed just goes about their business and they can't see anything breaking. Therefore, it must not be breaking. And not all the banks are going to come forward and raise their hand and come to the FDIC and the Fed and Treasury and say, hey, I just want to let you guys know, take a look at our 10Q and look at our numbers. We do have a lot of held to maturity stuff that if we had to sell it today, I'm just saying, if we did, it might be a problem. But no one's really going to do that because that would obviously spark fear, which we ended up getting anyway. And the thing we haven't, I want to talk about on this podcast specifically was the capital markets 101 failure that went on as it relates to the handling of this. One, obviously, the Treasury, the Fed, the FTIC were all late to the game here. But more importantly, an expert like Goldman Sachs that took the opportunity to purchase 20 billion of these assets from Silicon Valley, which you know they cherry picked the best which is why when they went to try to raise money and fill that $2.25 billion offering, they were unable to get it done. But Goldman Sachs was able to do it. And the next day, obviously, they had a huge gain because then they could effectively pledge those same securities at par and get a one-year loan for something plus 10 bips. That to me, that whole exercise was just a frenzied, crazy thing. And normally, you get that on a Friday to Monday. 
That happened to take place on a Wednesday to Friday. So they didn't have the luxury. And we saw what they did over the weekend. And now the mentality again, here we go, moral hazard, QB forever. And you have to respect it, the sense of that's just how people are programmed. But I don't want to hear from anyone who didn't see this coming and then says all is clear. Because to Vinny's point, they really don't know what they're talking about because people want to see what the immediate fallout is. Well, there is an immediate fallout here. Obviously, we're seeing First Republic get literally rescued by the minute with some new program. But more importantly, it's going to be the cost of capital going higher at a time where the Fed can't cut rates because inflation is going to box them in. So the thought of QE only works so much. Actually doing it, it would cause a whole nother round of problems, Guy. Yeah, Vinny, I'm glad Danny said that. And you alluded to it as well. And something I've been saying, and I don't know if the market fully understands this, interest rates could go back to zero. I don't, I'm not saying they will. But they could go back to zero. Cost of capital is not going to be commensurate with that move. The cost of capital, given all this stuff is going on, is going to stay elevated because it has to, by definition. So to a certain extent, if you're trying to say yields going lower, cost of capital is going to get better, you got to buy the banks here. If you're playing that rudimentary chess game, I would submit you got to look a little deeper because it's going to get more expensive. These banks are going to be under the microscope, probably correctly. And the cost of capital has continued to be difficult, which means almost by definition, in my opinion, that their earnings are going to suffer. Thoughts on that? 100% right. First off, the banks are going to have to charge more for what they provide to society. To me, it's inevitable. Right now, they're probably not providing any credit to society or very little, at least on the commercial side, my guess. So, in that respect, I agree with you. Now, here's an interesting plot that is coming out today. So we have this new rumored infusion of deposits at First Republic from the various larger banks that my guess are the ones that are receiving excess deposits, which gives the market the perception, right or wrong, that all is well. And let's be fair and frank, if the biggest acute issue are deposit runs, then what just happened is a positive for markets. So what happens? Well, yields revert back up. And as yields revert back up, that is the last thing these distressed banks want to see because they need, in the worst way, yields to go down so the underlying value of their books get better. So if we have what, quote unquote, a soft landing or a better economic environment as we get rid of some of the acute bank issues, I don't necessarily know if that's the greatest things in the world for these distressed banks. It's a bit of a hypocritical thing that I'm watching at, and it's why it's very difficult for me, I guess, getting to a stock idea or a non-stock idea, where I can't really go out at this point in time and go out and buy these distressed banks because I know safety or a better economic environment is not what they need, interestingly enough. The other thing is here, the regulator's nightmare, the big banks are about to get a lot bigger. I mean, they are getting bigger. And so how do you deal with something like that? So if you concentrate this in the bigger banks, which actually have the hardest stress tests and the hardest capital ratios to abide by, you effectively are taking lending opportunities out of the system because less community banks will lend because maybe people are going to start to be worried about the commercial real estate portfolio or the C&I loans in some banks because rest assured, there's now a new level of scrutiny. Now, instead of 1% of the people looking at it, it might be two, but that's twice as many of people that may be looking at it. And Guy, I know we're going to get into this because after finally knowing you for four years, you finally were able to watch the big short. And I know I'm not joking here. It was emotional for you and there's a reason you didn't want it. And I want you to talk about that because one, you have two characters here, 
But secondly, I want to really draw the comparisons because there are several differences, but there are several similarities. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up. And we joke around about this for the years we've been doing our podcast and the years that I've known you that I've never seen the movie. And it's not because I didn't want to see the movie. It's because I knew intuitively that if I watched that movie, it would upset me upset me to the point of tears. And that's not me being melancholy, hyperbolic, whatever word you want to use. It happens to be true. Now, I never saw the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, this Jordan Belfort character, for a myriad of different reasons, not least of which, in my opinion, wolves are a vital part of the ecosystem. Jordan Belfort is a piece of shit. He's not a wolf, number one. Number two, he couldn't find Wall Street with a friggin' GPS. He was out there ripping people off in the middle of Long Island. And I refused to watch it because it somehow championed these people and put these people on a pedestal that they did not deserve to be on. You guys, on the other hand, are the other side of that equation. You're trying to do everything right. So here I am. I sit down by myself to watch this movie that I knew would upset me. The movie, of course, being The Big Short. And here's my takeaways. It was extraordinarily well done. I mean, that is a masterpiece of a movie. It made an arcane subject matter extraordinarily accessible. And I think one of the concerns going in for all of you guys is, this is wonky shit. How is it going to be entertaining? Well, it was. And even if you have a rudimentary understanding of what's going on, you could figure it all out. And the way they brought in, to Danny's phrase, not mine, some of the eye candy to help out only made it that much better. But here's my other takeaway from that movie. I found such a kinship. Listen, I obviously know Vinny. I know Porter. I know Danny. I've met you. Listen, we're friends, and I consider you guys friends. And there's a bond that we have that is very difficult to explain. And again, I am not comparing my intellect with yours by any stretch. You guys round trip me in that one in a number of different ways. But I understand the joylessness of all of this. You guys figured something out that the rest of the world refused to see or was too stupid to see. And then you go down to Florida and see those two dipshit mortgage brokers or whatever they were, real estate guys telling you about their boats and stuff that couldn't tell you what a mortgage rate was if you gave them the next six months to explain it. And you were starting to realize the absurdity of all this. And you could see what was about to transpire. You put on a bet, betting that this was going to transpire. In some ways, you wanted it to happen because it would have made you wealthy. In other ways, you didn't want it to happen because you knew it was going to happen to the world if, in fact, it did come to fruition. So there's that inner turmoil going on. And then it starts to play out right before your very eyes. But the instruments that you put it on with were not working. And why wasn't it working? Because they rigged the friggin' game against you. The people that you basically sold these things to got short on the back of refused to mark their book until they laid the shit off on some other saps. So the market was rigged. Absolutely. Then it finally works. And then I'm watching Steve Eisman at the end. Vinny, you're having a conversation with him. I think you're on the steps of a church. I don't know exactly where you were, but you said basically, Steve, we need to cover our position. There was no joy. There were no fucking high fives going on. There was no happiness. You were right. You made one of the best trades in the history of prop trades, but you walked away from it, and I'll use the word, as forlorn as you were going into it, and that fucking resonated with me. And again, I'm not submitting on you guys by any stretch, but I like to think that I see certain things going on. You try to bring them to the forefront. 
people don't want to hear it. Everybody says they want to hear the truth. That's bullshit. People want to hear what gets them through their day. They want to see the fucking pom-poms, and they want to know that everything's going to be okay. But you know what? Sometimes everything's not going to be okay, and you need people like Steve Eisman. You need Danny Moses. You need Vinnie Daniel. You need Porter Collins. You need Jim Chanos to point out some of the absurdities out there and not be ridiculed by people that intuitively should know that they're fucking right in the first place. Anyway, sorry about that rant, but back to you, Danny. Wow, that was the rant, all of it. Let me lighten it up a little bit because you did not see The Wolf of Wall Street. I got a great Vinny movie story for you. So I love that movie just because it was entertaining. So Vinny goes to see the movie with his wife, Christine. And, you know, Vinny's from Queens, so he's old school, talks in movies from time to time, whatever. So there is one character that overlapped in that movie, and it was Margot Robbie. We had Margot Robbie in a bubble bath in the big short explaining CDOs, but we had Margot Robbie as the girlfriend of Leonardo DiCaprio that he had on the side. So DiCaprio in the scene, you didn't see, guy obviously, but takes her up to her apartment and he's has a moral dilemma. Does he go into the room with her or does he go home? And Vinny says out loud to move with her, he ain't leaving. And Christine <laughs> looks over at him and says, Vinny, tell me if that's incorrect. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to share that to kind of lighten it up a little bit before we go into this movie. And so, Vinny, when you were in our position, when I say our position, Steve, Vinny Porter, and myself, and you literally saw the end of not just the financial world, literally, it felt like the end of the world happening. Once you see that and you go down that rabbit hole, it's hard to ever get out and kind of ignore that that thing can happen. And I am envious of the people who just want to rely on the Fed and want to believe in it. But once you see it, I can't get out of my head. And God forbid we get to a point where, so here we are transferring the risk again to the government's balance sheet. What if at some point people lose faith in the government system and their ability to pay versus just the bank's ability to give customers back their deposits? So unfortunately, that's a scar that will never leave us. True story about the Wolf of Wall Street while I was in the movie theater. It was amazing how silent it was. And a guy would like this. Margot Robbie's character was in Italian-American terms called the Gumad. So second, yeah, it definitely did shape us what we went through. And it's interesting. You're starting to relive at least parts of it where we were on a podcast before, I think via iConnections. And... I said, well, here's what I would do if I were the regulators, but I know no one's going to listen to me because no one ever listens to us in terms of recommendations of how they should think about re-regulating the banking system, of which is inevitable. So you're going to start to see hearings. I know uh, Senator Warren has started beating the drum, and I think Senator Reid as well, and others. And I think probably from a market-related perspective, you're going to need to see a complete rehaul in my opinion, or change to Dodd-Frank. And these banks are going to need to be re-regulated. And hopefully this time they quote unquote, get it right. We shall see. And I don't mind giving recommendations because I know as crazy as they might sound or as stupid as they might be, no one's going to listen to me anyway. So I could just shout through the rooftops and I try to be logical in what I think we should see, but I doubt it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that people don't listen to you. By the way, and this is not a great comparison, but I'll make it, Terry Duffy of the CME Group, and this is not a shameless plug, but Terry Duffy was the, one of the first people to point out some of the absurdities that were going on with John Corzine. He was telling anybody that wanted to listen, you got to look at what's going on here. This is batshit crazy. It's going to blow up. 
nobody wanted to listen to him. And what happened? He wound up being right. And then fast forward, it's probably a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago, forgive me on my timing, he's testifying on Capitol Hill about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and Ro Khanna, one of the Congress people from California, effectively undressed him in front of the whole, what are you talking about? You don't know anything, blah, blah, blah. Well, if those assholes had listened to Terry Duffy then, I think maybe we'd be better off. And Terry also pointed out that if Silicon Valley Bank or any of these banks had actually hedged their portfolio with futures, yeah, things would have been bad, but it would have mitigated so much of the risk. They chose not to. One of the reasons is I don't think they had a chief risk officer at that bank, which is batshit crazy if you think about it. And again, I wanted to bring up the big short because so often throughout history, people that have clarity, those are the most tortured people in the history of our planet. That whole ignorance is bliss thing, man, there is effing truth to that. I'm somewhere in between in terms of the highly enlightened and a dipshit. And I like to think that I'm somewhere in the middle. I have a modicum of intelligence. But man, people that walk blissfully through life thinking that all their errors are going to be backstopped by whatever, the Fed, their parents, a teacher, a coach. Man, on one hand, good for you. On the other hand, man, that's effed up, Vinny. I mean, that's just my, once again, ranting on top of my rant. From the sad point of view, from, I guess, Machiavellian or selfish perspective, can you blame them? Every time something goes awry, they get what they want. They get bailed out. And I'm not saying that we should not have backstopped uninsured deposits because I think, in my view, deposits are sacrosanct because if you start having people fearing about whether your deposits are safe or not, we live in a very, very ugly world. What I'm really saying is we need proper regulation such that whatever the construct is of your bank, the way you run it, there needs to be per bank specific regulatory controls on you. So for example, let's give an example. With Silicon Valley Bank, they had a truckload of uninsured liabilities called deposits that could leave the station at any given moment. And as we know, they did. If that is the case, you should never, ever, ever extend duration on your assets. All those assets should be residing in short-term liquidity pools such that if they do leave the door, you have the liquidity immediately to get rid of it without any material markup. And the other thing is this whole held to maturity gambit where you could take a bunch of securities and put it in a held to maturity bucket and so therefore it's shielded from mark to markets as well as risk-based capital. I'm sorry to get a little bit complex. That's one of the first things as a regulator I would get rid of immediately. I want to talk about the quote, bailout and people's perception, comments and attitudes towards what happened, because I know there's differing opinions. And I want to just make clear my thoughts on this, because you have people preaching from the mountaintop and throwing stones from glass houses, in my opinion, saying, you know what, teach everyone a lesson, teach Silicon Valley a lesson, those people, venture capitalists, this, that, and the other. And some of these people are the same people that have benefited from ZERP that made billions and millions of dollars from just government intervention over time that had their own portfolios saved probably years ago from all this intervention. And for people to really, you really want to think, and this goes back to kind of the rabbit hole and the scar tissue from 2008. If you really want to see what would have happened without the government backsliding, I'm telling you, you don't want to see that. That would have been cataclysmic for this economy. So the people that say that are either in a position where they feel like they have enough money where it won't affect them. But we go back to what we did 
the PPIP, the TALF, TARP, all these things, QE1, 2, 3, and then with COVID stimulus and then PPP loans, et cetera, all these things that we've done, and including, Guy, I, I know I'm going to trigger you here, buying high-yield junk bonds and all this stuff a couple of years ago to keep a lot of these zombie companies alive, and we're not going to do this. So on a relative basis, you have to do it. On an absolute basis, if you hadn't have done any of those things in the past, but to Vinny's point, and this is really crucial, any changes that you want to make by guaranteeing deposits, you have to rein in the bank simultaneously. And so in real time, we're flying a plane with a broken wing here, and we're going to try to fix this. And that's why I believe just kind of the all clear, the cold trickle thing is just not where we are right now. I'm all about free markets and prices clearing, and we're still paying the price now for people that were living in la-la land, forget this whole deposit run. What does the real economy look like with, quote, normal rates? And what does a normalized economy look like? And you're seeing it now. And so this doesn't change that, in my opinion. If anything, like I said at the opening of the show, it fuels it. So anyway, Guy, that's my, that's my rant. We had Steve Eisman on, as I mentioned, on Fast Money. I believe it was Wednesday night. And if you didn't see it, you should go back and watch. I'm sure you can find it if you go to your Google machine. Mel correctly tried to pin him down on some trades. And Steve was saying it's a really hard environment right now. I mean, you're flipping coins, and that is not really an environment you want to be in. And I happen to agree with him. I mean, I am extraordinarily bearish, but I can understand the bull case here in terms of what's going on right before our very eyes. I don't embrace it, but I understand it. But I'll just say this, and I say this a thousand times on various shows. I have to say it jokingly, but I believe it. The dual Fed mandate, in my opinion, is to make sure both the S&P and the NASDAQ go higher. And that was true for a long time. I think Jerome Powell finally got the memo in November of 2021, and he did the right thing. But I will tell you, the real mandate is price stability. Well, if you look at the bond market over the last five or six sessions, anything but, as a matter of fact, depending on the measure you want to use, implied volatility is levels we haven't seen in decades. And something called the TVL is at levels we last saw at the height of COVID in March, April of 2020. I mean, you tell me where the price stability is. The bond market, and I've said this, is trading like a $135 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline. It's madness, the volatility that we're seeing. And I'm, I'm just putting it out there. That volatility has a way, Vinny, of manifesting itself or making its way into the equity market. Not tomorrow, not next week, but inevitably that's what transpires. Thoughts on that? Particularly when you take into account, Guy, the fact that a significant amount of institutional hedge fund capital is predicated on vol targeting. The amount of capital that they can deploy is based upon the level of volatility, which I think is insanity, but be that as it may, many of these funds have done remarkably well. And so as volatility increases, they have to reduce, all else being equal, the amount of capital they have at risk. So you're completely right. And that's whether it's the equity market or the bond market. So I expect volatility to stay with us until sadly, I think the Fed either pivots or quite frankly does QE. But in addition to that, I also expect the banks to sort of recoup some of these losses are going to increase their cost of capital to many of, to almost every single needer of capital. So I'm with you 100%. I mean, listen, I'll say this again, and I know I was on market call and then also on fast money and Mel asked me the same question. 
what are you buying or selling? And I said, nothing. I'm literally watching because to me, it's more about the impact that the banking system itself is going to have on the economy, more so than trying to bottom tick or, or top tick one of these stocks. But again, to Vinny's point, we talked about this before. I mean, the whole system is so financialized and the plumbing is so crucial in every aspect that you just had Santander cancel a $942 million subprime auto ABS sale. And yeah, guess what bank was involved in that? I mean, I think Credit Suisse was used to be, you know, back in the old day, buyers of these type of things. And when you think about something like that, think about the reverberations it has to the consumer that people aren't really thinking about. To me, these are the things that are going to be pulled forward and potentially get worse as a result. So you can't have an economy that was running on ZERP for so long. We've talked about this ad nauseum, have no reaction or no lag impact of all these rate hikes. And yeah, now rate cuts are being built in. I get it. But again, to me, as we go into Q1 earnings and the banks will be reporting first pretty much in mid-April, that's going to be quite a time. So I think we're kind of going to be maybe stuck here. I think the best case scenario for the stock market is it kind of hangs here until there's a bit more clarity here. But my inclination is that if you trade the market on earnings, that earnings just got incrementally a little bit worse. And whatever multiple you want to throw on that, great. But that's kind of where I sit here. I know there's a lot of people out there that listen to Vinny and Porter as it relates to energy. And I know we've had obviously a move down in oil and kind of a sell-off here. And before Vinny makes a comment, and they don't have to tell us exactly what they're doing in their portfolio per se, but I want you to think about that in the context of banks. And when you think about sectors, so you have a group of banks, I don't know all of them, that are exposed to energy. Some are exposed to mortgage-backed securities and some are exposed to energy loans and so forth. And again, we're nowhere near a problem necessarily, but my point is, do you run stress tests if oil goes to $35? I'm not asking Vinny that question. I'm saying in general, what does that mean? These are the type of things with instruments that are out there and it's a plug and play. And to your point, Guy, if you can't even plug and play the yield curve or bond prices into a portfolio. There's other assets that are very volatile that make it just as hard. So Vinny, give us 90 seconds on energy, your guys' thoughts here. First off, as the banks were imploding a few days ago, energy imploded as well. You can look at the price of oil and various other commodities and they all went down. And, and somewhat rightfully so, if you think about it, because if we are going into a recession, that is just a natural byproduct that you're going to have lower commodities in these stocks got hurt. So I think it's going to take a while for them to recover. However, the one difference for now, and I was thinking about, we got hurt. One of our largest positions, Peabody, got hurt really bad. And we've been nibbling at it a little bit more. And the reason being is they're probably on the eve. And when I say eve, over the next month or two or three months, I don't know, firming up their surety agreements so that they can buy back stocks and all of these companies, many of them are in much better capital positions, unlike a lot of others. They don't have that much debt anymore, and they're well positioned. Now, I don't think they're going to re rebound until we see some firming of the underlying commodity. But when you do get that, these things can be moonshots because they are so cheap relative to the cash they have on hand and the EBITDA and the cash flows that they're creating, even under a slightly distressed environment. So, We've been buying the ones that we really love slowly because I don't think I'm going to be rewarded tomorrow. But knowing that if you have to go out and buy back stock or you're going to go out and buy back stock and lots of stock to the point of 10 to 20% of the float, it's better to buy the stock at say 25 or 26 rather than 32 because you can buy back more stock, assuming your cash flows hold in there. And that's the assumption we're making. So yeah, it wasn't a pretty picture. But in general, what I like to do is call your losers 
pick and choose your favorite names and increase them such that you get the upside over the way I like to think about either a six-month or one-year or two-year period. Vinny, as I mentioned, and I mean this totally sincerely, and Vinny will tell you, we had a 20-minute conversation the other day after I watched the movie, and it upset me at a visceral level, but it also gave me great clarity as to how you think and how Porter thinks, Danny, Steve Eisman, Jim Chanos, all those people. And I and I don't say this out of some misguided humility. I mean this sincerely. You know, I wish to be half as rigorous as you guys are. And I will tell you, the world needs more Jim Chanos. It needs more Vinnie Daniels. It needs more Porter Collins. It needs more Danny Moseses. Because you guys are the ones that shine a light on all the ills that are going on in our basically corner of the world. So thank you for taking the time to join us. When we come back, a conversation with Chief Investment Strategy at BMO Capital Markets, Brian Belsky. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Brian, as you probably know, or you should know, I should say, I've been a, a long fan of your work. I've obviously seen you on CNBC over the years. I have the utmost respect for the thoughtful work you do. And what I've always admired about you, there's no dogma. And not to suggest that other people we've had on have dogma, but you know, you interpret things and you come out with decisions and conclusions that fit the times. And I will tell you, and Danny will get into this. I mean, these are about as extraordinarily a set of circumstances that I've seen in the 35 odd years I've been doing this. I had the good fortune or whatever to go through the credit crisis at Merrill Lynch. And I was head of US strategy and sector strategy at the time. I remember over the weekend, I started thinking about it again. And I was taking calls from brokers. I mean, I was doing institutional and retail at the time. But I remember I was getting calls from brokers back in July, August of 2008. They say, Brian, can we just not be in the paper? Can we have Maryland just not be in the paper? I'm like, that's way above my pay grade, brother. But you have to... I mean, most people remember me just more more recently because of halftime mostly with, with Wapner, but being the bull, right? Or I'm bullet. But I was the very first strategist on the sell side to go to a, a sell in financials in 2007. I'll never forget, it was August of 2007. And back then, we used to do sector trades. So 
long one sector, short another sector. So I went short financials and long tech early. It was early. And I remember I was getting hate mail at my house in New Jersey when I lived there at the time. Because if you remember, nothing got better in life in, in our world in 2007. We all got, that's when I maximized my pay, by the way. I never made more money since then. And then the world fell out in 2008. And we kind of saw it coming before so we can make the big call. This time around, I'm not saying it's different this time, but things happen so much faster, even relative to 2007. And so where I was going with this is I remember talking to one of the top five brokers at Merrill in September in 2008. And he's like, Belsky, what do I do? And at some point you just say, I don't know, because you know pride generates disgrace and, and humility generates wisdom. It's in this book called the Bible. And some of this stuff is inexplainable. You know, what's happening now with the banks and things like that, I'm sure we'll want to talk about it. But in our view, we're just kind of getting into the shit again. If you watch a lot of war movies, we got to kind of hold the line and be able to delineate who the enemy is and who isn't. Liz Young, I want to thank her for hooking you up with us. It's great to have you here. And I remember you being at Merrill and the other counterpart there was David Rosenberg. And so when we were at Front Point, having to deal with that, two very smart people and you guys saw it. I have always said, if you're on the sell side and you're short and you're wrong, you get fired. And people that tend to be bullish, keep their jobs throughout various cycles. You having traded through that period as well as we have, we're still kind of paying now, I think, for what went on back in 07, 08, and 09, meaning QE1, 2, 3, 4, TARP, TAL, PPIP, and whatever, PPP, all these things which have kind of not allowed us to clear at real prices and have allowed this leverage to come into the system and the, and the you know just the chase on risk. And so it's hard for me to see how something like this can just unwind. You just mentioned things happen quickly. I totally agree with you. This can happen literally over a week or a month or even a day. But it feels like, in my opinion, this cycle, we're going to have to kind of, it's going to be several years, in my opinion. And I realize I can separate the economy from the stock market. And our job is to kind of predict the stock market and interpret the economy. So just get your thoughts there of how long this is. It just doesn't feel like a quick fix here at all. I think what's going to end up happening is as we transition this back into this whole normalcy mode, which is really start, we really started talking about this back in May and June of last year when rates began to kind of obviously accelerate to the upside and, and markets started to figure that out to some degree. But I think this is going to be a three to five year process because, you know, quite frankly, we've reared an entire generation of investors that all they know is stocks go up because interest rates go down and the Fed's been easy. And we have to kind of go back into what the averages are. And, you know, everybody knows those numbers, right? 7%, around 7%, 10-year treasury since the 1930s, 5% if you include the financial crisis, a little over 2% since the financial crisis. So again, what does that mean for stocks? Or what does it mean for bonds? Or what does it mean for commodities? I think across the board, you want to own very high quality assets. And nobody really explains that. But from our lens and you know, doing this for now it's my 34th year and being at different firms and working with different analysts and different market cycles, to us on the equity side, it really means kind of stable earnings, low standard deviation of, of earnings growth, uh, valuations that you can match a high valuation stock above the market with a low valuation stock below the market. Uh, but have cash flow, maybe pay a dividend. And I think that's what's really going to win. And I think people are going to have a hard time with that. Most investors are going to have a hard time with that. You know, something was said earlier, Danny talked about how we look at the market and we're kind of paying still, right, for 07, 08, 09 for right now in terms of QE and all the other fantastic letters surrounding the Fed. 
I'm going to take that one step further. I believe that this started with the tech wreck. I believe this started with tech stocks. And so what do I mean by that? Investors got fat and happy throwing darts and buying stocks and buying tech stocks. They all went up together. And then we got our ass kicked thanks to CapEx-led recession uh, in technology stocks that started in 2000. And then, of course, our country was attacked in 2001. But we had that double kind of push into that recessionary period where stocks were down 2000, 2001, and 2002. Well, that's only one of three periods since the 1930s where stocks had two consecutive years of negative performance. And so because of that, guys, investors, the markets, whatever, created this whole scenario where financials had to take the lead. If you remember, financials were, along with emerging markets and everything, were, were the leading sector during that 2002 to 2007, kind of 2008 market. And there was no really other place to play in the US market. And so people got fat and happy. Financial companies got fat and happy. They got greedy. From my lens, though, right now, it's the obvious party goers, let's call it, that are in trouble, right? Credit Suisse, should you really be surprised that Credit Suisse or Bank Santander are in trouble? The answer to that is no. Should you really be surprised that highly levered uh, Silicon Valley banks and California banks are the ones that are causing a big part of that? No. Now, is it contagion? From our analyst lens that we talk to all the time, no, not at this point. Doesn't mean that it can't become that. But at the end of the day, let's blame a few of the bad apples. And I think the bad apples are obviously starting to come to fruition. Just to play devil's advocate here, Brian, and I respect what you're saying. So on Fast Money the other night, I mentioned that you know in 2018, during the Trump administration, they rolled back a lot of the Dodd-Frank stuff. And I think 17 Democrats actually voted for that as well. Obviously, within that framework, there were certain benefits banks that were not mandated to fall under sort of the bank stress test. And one of those banks was Silicon Valley Bank. And I posited that maybe if they were still under those auspices, things would have been different. That said, somebody came to me on Twitter and said, well, they just did something and they did a back test. And it seems as though if Silicon Valley Bank had been under those auspices, they would have passed. So my retort was, well, then the bank stress tests are flawed. So are we looking at the right things? I mean, so many of these comes down to regulators and just people uh, not paying attention. Thoughts on that? The other point you need to add is how come it took two days to figure this out too? Who was sleeping at the switch out there? And I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm pointing fingers. And I'm a free market person. I don't like to get government involved in anything. And so we don't. I don't like regulations in general, but we, we have to call it what it is. I mean, the regulations help across the spectrum with respect to financials. And from the way that we look at financials and where we've been invested, we've avoided the small banks. We've avoided the regional banks because we just don't think those type of stocks and those kind of banks don't fit our longer term theme for financials, which hopefully we'll touch on. We did have some exposure to Signature Bank, but we sold it at the end of January. And the reason why we sold it was because of the correlation with crypto. It, it was really... It's becoming too correlated with crypto. And if you ever heard me speak before, I'm not a fan of crypto anyway. And the stock got hit in December pretty hard and then rallied big time in January with a low quality rally. So we sold it. We sold all of it in our small mid cap portfolio. But 
I think, listen, if you're looking for regulations in the government to cover everything and dot all the I's and cross all the T's, I think that's kind of the wrong approach here. And clearly someone made some mistakes and was asleep at the switch. I think that's what you have to kind of look at. And and let's leave it with this too on that, is that there's some people and some companies out there that to them, rules are meant to be broken. And maybe there was some greed, maybe, going on with this, especially what occurred in 2001 in our marketplace in terms of all the free money and the SPACs and the tech and and all of that kind of stuff. So I think this is, yet again, unfortunately, an example of where greed took over. It was company-specific, a few of these, Signature, Silvergate, Silicon Valley, because of what their balance sheet looked like and who their customer base was, in the case of Silicon Valley, being venture capitalist. And management did a terrible job of duration mismatch, right, with their posits and then going out with with the assets. That being said, there, there were Qs and Ks uh, that were out there for a long time. A lot of people that do the bottom-up work saw it coming. But the issue here now is not just that other banks that have kind of long-duration treasuries and long-duration mortgage-backed securities, and here we are again, obviously prices are improving in the sense of the, if it was a $300 billion problem, it's now 200 given where rates have come into and bonds rallying and the same with mortgage spreads. But that being said, there's a whole other host of issues that the banks are, are facing. And this began, I've been talking about this for the last week, Really last year, it began when Blackstone in their private REIT, B-REIT, and Starwood started limiting redemptions. They had no run on the bank, so to speak, because they limited 5% a quarter of what could be taken out. We had two defaults occur already on very large, well-known office properties. PIMCO bought Columbia, which you know had, had all those defaults in California, multiple buildings, as well as Brookfield. And so those are issues that really are going to face a lot of the banks. And so just your viewpoint on the banks in general, because what's going to happen now is that the cost of capital is moving higher. I don't care what rates are. The banks are going to be required to hold more capital and they're going to be required to make better underwriting decisions. So how do you factor that? And because in my opinion, the deposit outflows were already occurring because of other options that depositors had prior to the fear of not getting their money back, moving into treasuries and money market funds. And so they try to stem the tide there. So their margins only have one direction to go. So when you say you like the banks, certainly at a certain price, what are you going to watch for really the all clear signal? Because like I said, on my last question, I think we're going to muddy through here and you agreed over the next three to five years. It's hard to see them being leaders here in this market. I'll, I'll kind of go back in, again, go back to the financial crisis. You know, the, the winners following the financial crisis were these small banks. And I go back to the 90s too, when post the commercial real estate crisis in 94 and the mid 90s, where because of that, you had a lot of mutual savings banks turn public. And then let's go post financial crisis, 2008, 2009, especially, you know, who were the winners in that? Well, Canadian banks and small banks. And so I think what's going to be interesting this time around X, the Canadian banks, I think, are still going to be big winners in this, huge winners in this. Uh, and not just because I work for one, but because the way that Canadians manage their capital, manage their balance sheet, they're excellent stewards of capital. They're very long-term. They're very conservative. They're very careful. And they're usually very negative. And so I think that has served them, served them well during the financial crisis. And it's going to serve them well coming out of this as well. But I think the big winners are going to be Money Center Bank. And it's going to be the exact inverse of what happened following the credit crisis. Nobody wanted to go to a big bank. Now I think everybody is going to want to go to a big bank. And I think there's a big difference between what you're hearing on a mainstream bank versus a commercial bank versus you know a venture capital bank. So I think you're going to see coming out of this, 
you're going to have to see consolidation. You're going to have to see more regulation on the smaller banks. I think that's coming. That bodes well, whether or not that is going to trickle up and cap to the big banks. I would not buy an ETF, a regional bank ETF. My life depended on it. And it just ushers in, I think, and accentuates the absolute need to be a stock picker. And there's going to be a couple of regional banks and small banks that shine their way through this. That's what you're going to need to find. I would not be buying any kind of wrap product or ETF product centered around the regional banks right now. You know, I've gotten to know Danny over the last three and a half, four years, and I know what he's thinking. So I will just sort of echo what's in his mind right now. But the regulators out there, I mean, what you're suggesting, which is probably right, by the way, but is the exact scenario that the regulators are probably scared shitless of, and that's these banks becoming too big. But that's effectively what's going to happen. So you've gone from fearing too big to fail to almost encouraging it. Thoughts on that? You're exactly right. You nailed it. These banks are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so- what comes after that? The next crisis. And I don't know what that is. I'm not trying to put the cart in front of the horse, but that's potentially what's going to be. But it's not going to be this. The big banks are not going to be t- taken down by this. They're not. It's going to be something else. And I don't know what that is. So let's talk about the market here. And by the way, Brian, when I say the things that I say, in no way am I suggesting that I'm right. These are just sort of my thoughts. So here we are with an S&P for the folks playing our home game. Let's call it 3890. And right now, it appears as though consensus earnings for the S&P 500 are about $222 thereabouts. So that basically makes us a historic market multiple, about 17 and a half times earnings. So understanding that earnings and valuations or multiples don't trough at the same time, how do I get around that? Because in my mind, I think in this environment, we're probably two and a half multiples too high. And I think that $222 is probably about 15% or so too high as well. Explain to me sort of what I'm missing here, because I'm certain I'm missing something. If you think 15% too high, are you thinking like a 190 number, 195 number for earnings? In this environment, layoffs are coming. Cost of capital, regardless of what interest rates are doing, as Danny just mentioned, is going higher. They're going to be more stringent in terms of what's going on. I think the consumer is probably going to pull back. We're 73% economy driven by the consumer. So I'm hard pressed to believe we're going to come in around those numbers. And again, I'm not saying I'm right, but you know, in my mind, I think somewhere between 190 and 200 is probably reasonable in the backdrop that we find ourselves in currently. Yeah, I mean, our number's 220, and that would equate to a 5% pullback from last year. We're still trying to finalize what last year's numbers was. That's a difficult thing with the earnings because it's a bit lagging. And our worst case scenario is 210. You know, given the fact of how much revisions have already gone down, given the fact that Companies are already beginning this under-promise, over-deliver mantra, which we heard in fourth quarter earnings. Now they're going to blame. Now they have further uh, gas in the fire in terms of what's happening now. So you have, let's call it the next three to six months or so. Let's call it three months where the next earnings period is really going to be telling in terms of how far they're going to drop these earnings. So... You know, when you take a look at the construct of the earnings environment, you know, financials actually, the big financials actually look pretty, still look pretty good from where balance sheet strength is and where earnings are. Big tech stuff still looks okay. Healthcare looks okay. Industrials looks okay. Energy, obviously, with WTI rolling over, especially those areas that are more correlated to WTI, are probably a little bit too high. 
And so uh, Staples are making a lot of money, but Staples are uh, among the areas that we don't like because I, I just think it's too simple to just go buy Staples because they're defensive. I think there's they're, they're very, very, very expensive. Utilities are the most expensive sector in the market. Debt to equity for utilities are, is off the chart. So I don't see the wherewithal of even wanting to buy utility stock. But at the end of the day, there's probably going to be a little bit more downside. Maybe it's 215, maybe it is 210. And then I think we have some sort of a recovery the second half of the year that gets us closer to our number. But in terms of earnings stability, I, I still think from an asset perspective, the standard deviation of earnings growth in the United States is among the lowest in the world. That's why I still think you need to be there. I'll even give you 220 and say you come in at your number, but why should we pay an historic market multiple in what I think we all would agree is a challenging environment. When we have seen multiple, and I'm again, I'm not suggesting we're going to an 11 multiple, but we have seen multiples in the low teens. Those low teen multiples also coincide with a lot deeper recession. So our, our base case is that we've either already had a recession or if we're going to get a recession, it's going to be a light recession. The average multiple coming out of a bear market for the next 12 months following from the start of the bear market, the average multiple increase is six and a half points. So it's called seven. So multiples actually go up coming out of bear market. You know, why is that? Well, the numerator or the denominator because earnings go down. So I think with Europe, in my view, still a shit sandwich and a lot of people chasing it because it outperformed last year. People want to be in emerging markets because that's sexy. And a lot of that was currency on both sides and, and massive underperformance, obviously. I think people are going to pay for stability. And what that number is, I don't know exactly what that multiple number is, Guy. But at the end of the day, I think people are going to want to pay for what they know. It comes back to one of the very first rules I learned in investing over 30 years ago. I worked at William O'Neill and Company in Los Angeles. And I had the very good fortune of being in front of both Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett in the first four years of my career. And both of them said the same thing. Only buy stuff you can reach out and touch. And I think during times like this, you don't want to be too far from home. So I think we all agree that there will always be U.S. economy starts and ends with the consumer. It's facilitated with the banks and financial products, right? So the consumer is now, I think you would agree, extended. I mean, savings rates are, are dropping. Credit card balances are high. We've seen that kind of go on. We've seen kind of a resurgence post-COVID of spending on services. The good spending, to your point, which I'm sure you've looked at, has already started to slow. But to think that we're even feel like we're in recession or in a recession, I don't care what the definition of a recession is. Technically, we had it last year with two negative GDP quarters already. But you made the point of that PEs tend to increase. Well, they don't increase off of a 17 to 18 multiple to 25. They What they do is they increase off a 10 or 11 to a 17 or an 18 multiple in the S&P. So you're saying, just I'm just going to push back a little bit and just, in, you know, not, not in a bad way, but 210 can't be the most downside. But I would argue, I'll come back on the other side, if it was 190 or 200, at that point, you could make the argument that that's the trough of which you can pay a higher multiple on. So I feel like what you're saying could be correct, but the seven to eight is not from 17 to 18. And we are nowhere near, in my opinion, a consumer-led recession, which I think could be imminent. And so I know I threw a lot at you there. I'm trying to put the puzzle together, but give that a shot if you don't mind. That's the average over what like 12 recessions that we looked at and, uh, and where it came from is usually around that, let's call it, 12 to 13 or 15 number. So, you know, to get up to 22. I just think that throwing out a $200 earnings number and a 15 multiple, because that's what the math says and that that's what the academic books say, 
to get to 3000 on the on the market. That's just lazy math. And have you ever seen the movie Deadpool? Deadpool talks about lazy writing. Well, I think that's just lazy math. And I think it's more to fuel the negativity. But in terms of the consumer recession part of it, we had in, in the financial crisis, we had a consumer recession, we had a credit recession hitting at the same time. We haven't had a CapEx recession for a long time. CapEx looks different now than it ever has in my career. You know, most of it's enterprise spending, things like that. Maybe that's maybe that's what we're heading into. But at the end of the day, there's no doubt that behavior is going to change because of fear. And there is this week I've encountered more fear than I have for most of last year actually because the consumer was still coming back and we were still coming back from COVID. We were still coming out of lockdown and we're humans. We can't be locked down forever. And that's why we kind of had that buying exhaustion. Now the consumer is getting smart again. They still may be spending a hundred bucks or 90 bucks, but they're spending it in very concentrated areas. They're not, they're not blown at all, all over the place. So the high end to us still looks pretty good. At the end of the day, this could be one of these periods where we already had the recession. You know, stocks lead earnings, which lead the economy. So stocks went down over 20%. Says we're going to have a recession. Maybe we had the recession. Now earnings are going to slow down and the economy is the last to drop. I think those in the marketplace that are out there saying we need to have millions of jobs lost um, for this thing to be over, I just don't understand how people can go out there and say, that we need all these jobs to be lost. And that's a really, really good thing because that's what the academic books say that we need to have to see employment go up. This has been one of the weirdest environments ever in the marketplace. And I think we are trying to be too academic in this and trying to figure it out. Layoffs are really just starting. And the layoffs are in the white collar world. Blue collar, the shortage of jobs. Trades are being sought after and paid and paid for, which is a really good thing uh, for the underpinning of the economy. But the other comment you just made, and we can move on from this, is that if 200 actually is the number, it's going to feel really bad going towards that 200 level. And so, yeah, maybe indeed second or third quarter. So I think, yes, if you're looking out a year and a half, two years, maybe in a longer term target, and it's a buy the dip mentality, I totally get that, really appreciate that. But if we are headed to a 200 number, the market will have a lot of downside. And certainly we might get back up to these levels where we are now, or maybe even back to above 4,000 towards the end of the year. But I think people underestimate how bad it actually feels when that's occurring. And the one thing I will say that consumers themselves, this is the first time for many consumers, you mentioned how young people are that are trading and haven't seen. So let's, you know, let's call them 33, 34, 35 years old to really question, since all they know is that the feds had your back, the government has your back, are my deposits safe? And that has a, a real chilling impact, whether it's temporary, meaning a couple of weeks or a month, to really start to think about kind of the world. And that self-fulfills to me, possibly just spending slowdown on its own. Is it warranted? To a degree, will it come back when people get confident in the system? Yes. It just feels to me like the perfect storm. And I know you're long only in the sense of you allocating $7 billion and, and you have to pick sectors to you know kind of choose where to go. So that I totally appreciate. And within those sectors kind of being stock picker. So let me just dive into that. So you're overweight, healthcare, communication services, financials, underweight staples and utilities, as you just mentioned, kind of within those sectors, maybe of your top overweights. I know you kind of, we talked about the banks a little bit and some of the bigger banks you like. Maybe we can dive into some names that you actually like here. So much of our career doing this has been talking about the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street, where Wall Street's like, I don't understand why people are so worried. Things are great. And it's the inverse now, right? Wall Street... We're all worried. The world's coming to an end. We're scaring the shit out of everybody on TV. 
where I, I walk across the street here in Naples, which is not really real life, but uh, there's no, there's no, there's no recession here, baby. And so that something has to has to switch on that. So I'll let you chew on that for a second. But in terms of ideas, you know, we run concentrated portfolios, so we run nine different portfolios. And we also run a balanced portfolio. And so some of our portfolios that we manage for our, our wealth clients in Canada have a mixture of Canadian stocks in there because it's not a diversified index in Canada. We have to overlay that with some U.S. stocks. So in the U.S., though, in financials, healthcare, and communication services, communication services came into the year, we thought, this is our contrarian play. And here's why. To us, it's the quintessential barbell sector with AT&T, Verizon on one side. Disney, to some degree, is is kind of in there in Netflix and Google machine on the other. I sold all my Facebook stock in the fourth quarter of two, in 2018 because I didn't understand the whole meta thing. Obviously, we've had a big move recently in that, but we're really laying our bets in Netflix as the streamer. We added Netflix to our value portfolio actually in June of last year when it got really crushed. And then the next month, the Russell added it to its 1000 value. So we think that the primary theme for communication services is the three C's, cash consolidation, um, in content. I think there's a new consolidation in the streamers going forward and Netflix is going to be the winner. We've added to our Disney position in both our value and our tactical portfolios because I like Bob Iger. He's a great leader. I like to buy leaders and buy products. And I think Disney's going to write the ship. We sold some of our Comcast to, to fund that. We still own Google. I think Google's going to be fine through all this chat GBT thing. From the communication services side of things, we really like that sector. In financials, our primary theme is scale, scale, scale. Money center banks, asset managers, and broker dealers. In our small mid-cap portfolio, we own LPL and Raymond James. In our tactical and kind of large-cap value money, we own Bank of America, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, some Goldman. I have a contrarian fly on Blackstone. It hasn't really worked out so far, but private equity works when rates go down. My bet is a year from now, rates will be lower than they are now. And so I think Blackstone, the pretty smart people there. We also own little BlackRock as well. And of course, we own Berkshire Hathaway because it's a great defensive name in financials. In healthcare, we're product people. I want to buy companies that keep me alive. Except for United Healthcare, we've owned a decent chunk of that for years. So we own AbbVie and Pfizer, Thermo Fisher, those types of names. And Gilead in our value portfolio because they got a boatload of cash. And so I think the first one that I worry about the most in our overweight sectors would probably be healthcare just because of the performance so far this year. But I do believe that we're heading into this elongated value, value, Garpy, high quality side of things. Doesn't mean you can't own tech. We still have big positions in Apple, Microsoft in certain areas. We've really kind of scaled back in some of our other growthier tech. It's interesting you mentioned Disney. Disney, obviously one of the great storytellers. And you put out a note in February, I think February 23rd, entitled Bear Fables and Bull Facts, which I thought was really fantastic. And I took a lot from it, but this is what I'd like to sort of drill down because I think a lot of people struggle with this. Prior leadership is rarely the new leadership. So I think we all would agree that prior leadership was a handful of stocks, high valuation, high growth stocks as well. But the main names we talk about all the time that I won't rehash here, but speak to that because I think it's an important point you're making. Well, that's why in January, we came out and said, hey, we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, man. The markets are up. We feel good about this because we like when stocks are green and the skies are blue. However, we were concerned because not only was it low quality, 
But investors are chasing the same stuff that they own in the last cycle, namely tech and some high multiple tech. And so we took that opportunity to kind of pare back some positions. I think the next leadership is going to be more Garpy, more value-ish, and more high quality. Now, it doesn't mean that you sell all your tech stocks. It just means that it's going to be really difficult, I think, for tech to lead. For the record, we've been neutral tech for the last couple of years. I think that's been the right call, but owning the right stocks. I kind of look at the market guy kind of back to my roots in the mid 80s, early 90s. I think we're heading back into that type of environment. Consumer did very well. I think consumer needs to wash itself out a little bit more so. But I think we're going to have new leadership in, I think, small cap too. Unfortunately, small cap is being thrown out the baby with the bathwater here a little bit with what's happening with banks. And so I think this is undercut. If you want to talk about valuation, man, if you look at relative valuations of the small mid cap stocks relative to large cap stock, they look amazing. And so I think we're heading into a multi year cycle of value, small cap, small mid cap, uh, GARP, high quality. And then you can buy those higher quality areas where operating performance is improving within industrials. We'll buy some certain railroads and truckers and freight companies and, and tool companies because what was said earlier is really interesting. The white collar workers are making less money, but blue collar workers are making more money. And I do believe that the themes of onshoring and all of that are really going to benefit industrials in some of those other areas. Yeah, that's a good point. Last thing for you, Brian, that I have is just a lot of geopolitical noise. And yes, you can be long defense stocks and things like things of that nature to that, but how that kind of incorporates into your mindset. And then, of course, because you're at a bank in Canada, we know there's a yellow metal that they love up there a lot. It's just any thoughts that you had maybe on gold? <laughs> gold. I, I'm happy that I'm overweight materials in Canada. That's for sure. And you know, as the low quality rally kind of took over in the beginning of the year, materials and gold kind of rolled over. But I went bullish on gold last year originally because I thought it was going to be a crypto trade. And it was out of crypto and into gold. Now, obviously, it's been more of a fear trade, but we love gold. You know, the thing about gold companies in Canada, Canada, they've gotten religion, quote unquote. When they used to have 10 loonies in their pocket, they'd be drilling the hole or digging a hole. Now they're buying back stock, paying dividends, much more capital discipline. So the nuance of the world to us, the egg Nikos, and it's another Canadian stock look really, really good. But I think, you know, going forward with the canary in the coal mine is China. We don't know what's going to happen there, obviously. The Taiwan thing seems to have diffused a little bit, but who knows? Russia. I think is less of an issue. I think right now it's more China. And we've owned Lockheed Martin and Northrop for years. We've owned Palo Alto for, for a couple of years as well. And so I think that's a major theme. Cybersecurity is a major theme. Part of the reason why we've owned Lockheed Martin in portfolios for 10 years. Part of the reason is it's a perfect stock for Canadian retail to own. Canadians love dividends. And Lockheed Martin, cash flow yields above dividend yields for like 25 straight years. And so they've been able to grow their dividends. I think those themes are here to stay, unfortunately. And defense spending is going up, guaranteed revenue. And so we really like those names from a longer term perspective. Brian, I've said for years on Fast Money that Gandhi could be Secretary of Defense and defense spending would continue to rise in the United States. So I'm with you on that. And listen, on behalf of Dan Nathan, who again is not with us, I really want to thank you for joining us here on the tape. Thank you so much. It's very humbling, especially since we were bullish last year and wrong. But you know, I, I hate nothing more than losing people money and being wrong. But you have to kind of step up and say, hey, this is how we're going to get through this. And hopefully we've done that. So I really appreciate your support. And thanks for having us. You've always been a stand-up guy without question. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are never wrong. Those people typically are full of shit. You are not one of those people. So thank you for joining us, Brian. Thanks, guys. 
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.